Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long Finish. I am your host, Tug Coker, and I'm here as always with my wife and co-host, Catherine Weil Coker. How are you doing tonight, Catherine? I'm good. How are you? Big, big, big things happening in the Coker, the Weil Coker household. <laughs> We'll discuss these things at a later date, but we're back for another episode of The Long Finish, episode 46. Hope you checked out the previous episode, episode 45, which was uh, Election Wands. We're on to a new episode tonight, and this is a fun one. This is uh, an interview that we actually taped a few months ago before we had a little bit of a burnout with the podcast, but we taped it, I don't want to say in August or I think like maybe August. It was August. In August. And we listened to it this week and it's fantastic. Honestly, I was like really enjoying it and laughing at some of your jokes. Oh, thank you so much. Very rarely does that happen, but it did happen uh, a couple of times in this podcast, I guess. But who are we interviewing tonight on the pod, Catherine? We are interviewing Andrew Major. He is a colleague in the wine business in Los Angeles. He's a winemaker, first and foremost. He's also seller of wines. He represents two fantastic portfolios here. One is Mission Wines, a lot of imports, and the other is Burke Wines, mostly from Central Coast in California. And he's also just a friend, a great guy to hang out with, and a dad. So we thought he would be a perfect guest for our podcast because he's a family guy and he sees a side of the business that we don't see. But we had a lot of crossover and understanding in this interview and it was really fun for me personally and hopefully all of you guys too to understand another side of the wine business. I think that's one of the big takeaways from this interview is that there is a fun breakdown of so many different components that take place within the wine world, whether it's selling wine or making one's own wine or living uh, and surviving as a parent in the wine world. Lot of, lots of fun nuggets to come out of this one. So I hope you enjoy it. I will say this right now. If you're listening to this in the car with some kids, there are some expletives thrown around. There's a few curse words tossed about. This was an after-hours interview. Yes, it was. So just be aware of that. Make sure you're, you're listening to this uh, in a suitable place. But let's go ahead and get into the interview with Andrew Major of Major Wines. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Not only are you a, a good bowler when, when I ran into you. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. One time bowling. But <laughs> you, you wear many hats in the wine world. And I think, like, it's kind of fun to pull the curtain back a little bit for people who listen to our show and just do a little demystification of what what's happening in the wine space. And I think you're a good person to talk to about that. I'll try to give whatever insights I have. Well, let's do it. Well, well also, we didn't mention that you are a dad. Of yes. Two beautiful girls. Super proud dad. I mean, what's what's nuts is is I think about this periodically about like you and I, Catherine and Tug are, are I feel like some of the few people, at least in the Los Angeles wine scene, who have kids or who have there are definitely people who do, but you know, I always feel this kind of like this a bit of FOMO with the wine people are out at night at different bars and hanging out and they've got all these Instagram spreads of their bottles. And I'm like, holy shit. Like if I can just get through one of those tonight <laughs> and, and you feel like you're, there's this whole world happening out there. You're like, wow, kids. And then you sort of track through everybody, you know, and it's like, they don't have kids. And 
you're sort of like, what did I do wrong? And, no, I'm joking. But it's it's not not many people. So I, I always feel like I have like a, a little bit of little extra bond with you guys because we're all in the same bunker together. And yeah, it's, it's a bunker. I always about it being a bunker, but it's actually- No, it's a bunker. It's definitely, but we're, we're going through a bunker. I think your kids are slightly older than ours, but let's, you know, let's go into that now. Can What ages are your kids? And a question for you is, we talk about this every week on the podcast. What is a typical bedtime for you <laughs> as a parent? Like, what's a rut- your routine? Routine, what time now? are you done at night? And to the FOMO point, are you able to enjoy glasses of wine once the kids go down, et cetera? Well, there's a version that's not recorded and then a version that is recorded. The version that's not recorded, I'll be totally honest, is, you know, during the pandemic, it has been, the tradition has, we all eat dinner together in our living room in front of the television and we try to all agree on something to watch. So that's become our nightly tradition. And so it's sometimes a little bit of fighting between the girls. So we've worked really hard on coming up with this long list of movies. How old are the girls? Jordan, our oldest is starting fourth grade and then uh chloe our youngest is going to be starting first grade gotcha. and yeah so we'll get through like you know around like 8 30 8 8 30 the intention is eight but it usually ends up like around 8 30 we'll start the process of getting them to bed but our, our girls really love listening to books on tape so that's kind of our leverage for the last maybe year of getting them into bed saying like okay you know 8 30 is bedtime but if you want to listen to a book on tape on top of that then you better like you got to get changed get your pjs brush your teeth go to the bathroom and two out of three nights they just get this burst of energy and they start chasing each other around the house and start jumping each other it becomes like a wrestling match in their in their bedroom and i don't know if your kid i don't think your kids are quite there yet but what, no, I'm That's nodding because we night. do we do experiences. Yes, and sometimes it's my fault, but most of the time it's them because <laughs> yeah. That's like, for, for everything across the board. By the way, because <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden they start playing with you in a way where you're like, oh, this is really fun. Like I'm a guy and I'm like bouncing, throw them around and this and that, and you start to think hey, this is going to tire them out because they're being like active and playful. But then you kind of look over and, and my wife is just like, you're a fucking idiot. You're only making this longer and more prolonged because now they're like like on sugar. And that's always the case. Yeah. And it just turns into a whole extra thing, but whatever. So point being, sorry, that took way too long to explain our, our bed. It's all good. In- but, it, but honestly, like that for the most part, once, you know, we can use that audio book and they're in bed and they're listening to something, we put a little sleep timer on it. And Jordan is, is a fat, she goes to sleep immediately. And Chloe, she will be up for like the next hour or two. And it's just like constant admin of deal making of how to get her to just stay under her covers. And, and then when my wife is, my wife is a television producer. So she will often go on location for long periods of time. And so then that takes on a whole. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea how you do that. I, I do like two nights a week by myself, put them to bed. And it's like, <laughs> I dread those two nights. Yeah. I dread them. So kudos to you. <laughs> you know, I have, I have my own style, my own way. You know, then they'll get to bed around nine. But it's usually how it is if you're doing it. You know, it's just a little bit later if you're doing it by yourself. Definitely a little bit later. You know, time sure. just, just a little yeah. um, Do they share a room? They share a room. That adds to the for us adds to the problem that we have where yeah. it's hard to put both of them down at the same time because one of them goes down, one can sleep well, like you, to your point, 
The other one is a, like a light sleeper. So we have, we're having trouble orchestrating how to get them both down at the same time. As we speak, one of them, our oldest son is in our bed sleeping. And then I'll move him, <laughs> I'll, I'll transition him into his room later tonight. Because there was just too much chaos yeah. during the songs. It was too crazy. He had to go out and do his own bedtime. Yeah, I promise you in an hour, Chloe's going to come out. She always puts her stuffed animal over her face, and you can see the little smirk out the sides of her mouth, like, I can't sleep. Or she'll just straight up lie and say, like, I had a nightmare, but she's, like, laughing behind her <laughs> animal. And you're like, like, I, I'm not that dumb. Like, this is, and then you're just like, oh, come here. I don't know. The, the last question I want to ask you, and you talking made me think about this. Did your parents, or I know nothing about your background, but did your parents, did they drink during dinner when you were growing up? No, not at all. Neither did Very, like, like religious, Christian, conservative, uh, evangelical family. <laughs> yeah. And so there was, like, there was no alcohol whatsoever. Um, and it was just, like, people who drank are not very good people, <laughs> just put a blunt. And it just wasn't a part of like my upbringing. It's kind of crazy that now like my whole career and, and hobby and interests and passions all revolve around it in some way or another. And now my parents drink wine. I was going to ask you how they changed their opinion on that since you've been gotten into the business. And apparently yeah. they have. My parents retired and I think it's some, I don't know. I've got to actually ask them because I remember coming back one day and my dad had like Malibu rum. He's putting it in his Coke. <laughs> what are you doing? Okay. And then the next time I came and my dad had Boone's wine in the refrigerator. And I'm like, you know, my brother and I'm like, what is going on? It's like the sweeter, the better. And then I kind of joked with my dad. I'm like, oh, right. You're just starting out drinking. Like you are at the sorority girl phase. Yeah, no, yeah you're <laughs> a high school kid. You are at Boone. Oh my God, this is fantastic. Like, this is great. Sounds like a fun retirement. <laughs> My dad is drinking boots, and I broke down and cried. I was so proud. It's very funny because my family was similar. I don't remember my parents drinking during my dinners, but as we got out of the house, I have two younger sisters come back home, and it's like drinks every night. You know what I mean? There's a cocktail, there's a glass of wine all the time. So no, it's actually an interesting question because you always wonder like what other people's, especially if you're drinking a little bit more than maybe what people are <laughs> suggesting. You're like, not during quarantine, I am. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, quarantine, it's, it's been interesting because I've been following the business trends and wine retail sales have been are up 25%. And just drinking in general is up at a point where now you're starting to read articles that are concerned about people's consumption. And, but I mean, what else are you going to do when you're like stuck at home and you just have television and... Yeah, books on tape, a couple kids. Tape, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you alluded to something earlier, and I think it's a nice transition into the rest of the podcast, which is you have some formative moments, your relationship to wine. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into wine and you know what led you to where you are today? So I had a whole other career. I moved out in California in 2000, and I worked in television film for 10-ish years. I was like on the film development side, then I was like baby TV writer, writer's assistant, staff writer, and a, a number of television shows. And then I realized like around 2011, 2012, I hated it. Like I just hated all of it. I was, every show I was on either got canceled halfway through or we would make it until the end of the season and then it wouldn't get picked up for a second season or a showrunner get fired and then everybody would have to go. And so I, multiple shows, but I was also like writing at a writing partner and we were selling a few things here and there. But I just, at a certain point, I just had to come to terms with the fact I hated it. Even if I 
we're making a million dollars a script or whatever, that I would still be miserable doing it. And so I was just like, I was totally different person. I'd become such a miserable person. And I just really had to dive in and realize like, why am I so miserable? My entire life, I've been like a jolly, happy, fun kind of person. And so I started to kind of start to rethink like, well, what do, what do you do if like you've been doing something for like 10 years and you want to make a total career change? Okay, I've made that decision. And, you know, my wife kept encouraging me to just like talk to everybody and find some mentors and everybody just kept saying like, well, what makes you happy? If you can make money at anything, what would it be? And I was like, wine was always, I always, I was always reading books about wine. I, whenever we would travel, we would try to make it focused on an area of wine and whether it be Italy or Napa or somewhere. And I'm like, well, if I could, but I, I, I don't know how exactly you make good money at it. Cause you know, I'm sure as you know, you work in, in Hollywood, it's like no matter where you travel in the world, you say you work, you know, in television or movies or whatever, it's super cool. And I had like a little bit of an ego about it. I want to like say, oh, I couldn't cut it or, you know, whatever the excuse. But at the same time, it's like, well, if you could make money in any other profession, it's like wine. And I have a cousin who's a distributor in Missouri, who every time I would go back, home where I'm from in Kansas City where I grew up he always like had wines open and his bag open of wines he took around to restaurants and retail and they were always good I just thought oh my god I can't believe you just get to like taste wine with people all day long and then you get to travel the world you know it's a, it sounds like a pretty great life but I was at the same time I was also making wine in my garage just for fun because I had taken this class at UCLA, this wine class, and the professor passed around this bottle, and everybody was like, this is amazing, and at the end, he was like, well, I actually made it in my garage with a buddy, we got grapes in Santa Barbara, and I'm like, wait, if this guy can do that, like, I can do that. But that's so that's I, like an infomercial yeah, kind of does. like, it's that's like, crazy. and here's the reveal, I made this in my garage. Yeah, exactly. And everybody's <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah, I know. It was a really good wine, I mean, maybe. Like Joe you know, Bluth. Totally. And I was listening to podcasts and just like reading everything. And I'm like, how do you even start calling and getting grapes to make wine? And he made it sound so easy. And, you know, I was listening to podcasts of this guy, Wes Hagen, who used to do Club Peppy Wines, which I don't think exists anymore. It was like, hey, anybody wants to make wine, even in the garage, give me a call and I'll hook you up with grapes. And like called him up. And so he sent me over to a vineyard and I was promised these great, wonderful, amazing grapes. But then when it came time to pick, he would call this and said, hey, it's time to pick. And then we show up and he's like, oh no, you guys are going to get the grapes over here. And it was like garbage. And we, even not knowing anything, we knew it was garbage. Yeah. And so we're just like, fuck it. Like we're picking it. And the wine wasn't very good. Oh, and somebody else once told me too, that like get one of those make wine at your house kits or whatever. I don't know if they even exist, but you could literally buy this like cardboard box and it had all the tools and you can make wine literally in your kitchen sink. Wow. They're like, don't, don't do it with any, it's going to be awful and garbage, but at least you could see the grapes. Your hands are putting yeast into it. You're watching the fermentation in a bucket for a week. And then you're going to take all of that soup and you're going to squeeze it out in like a cheesecloth into something else. Like that's why. And so to me, that's when it really, I've been on so many tours of winemaking and wineries and stuff. It wasn't until I made that little like wine at home kit where it like clicked, like, oh, that's how you do it. And so no matter how big the winery is or how small the winery is, it is always some version of that home winemaking kit that I bought in a cardboard box. Huh. 
That um, is super cool. I wish you could give that to like every student of wine and just be like, go do this. Then you'll yeah. love it. <laughs> you just do it there in your kitchen. And again, you don't have to sit there and think like, you know, it's going to be awful. Part of you is like, oh, maybe like I'll be the one that makes it good. But it's just like frozen grapes, you know, from wherever. Anyway, super long story short, I ended up because I was making it in my garage with no intention of like actually being a winemaker, but I was thinking, oh, well, maybe it's the winemaking side of things I want to do. So I did a internship for Harvest. I did a Harvest internship in 2012 at Tyler Winery, and it was just like four of us making wines. And it was like, I showed up, and right after I pulled up, like bins of Sauvignon Blanc showed up, and they were like, get on a ladder, start putting them in the press. And it didn't stop for like three months and it was hardcore and it was super hard. And I learned so much just in those three months. But I also like, that was at the exact same time. I had a, um, I had an eight month old then, but my wife was like super cool. She's like, you need to make this change. This might be something you want to do. Go like we got, I got like a little part, little apartment in this like, mobile home park that had like converted itself into sort of nice apartments and they came up on weekends and I went and I worked harvest at a winery for three months and you know they were super supportive with it and I learned an insane amount every lunch we had a whole spread of all these different wines great wines and we would talk about them so I had I was slaving away at winemaking learning about it during lunch and I was surrounded by people who were super curious about wine and it just like opened everything up. And the winemaker was also explaining like you could, if winemaking or being a cellar rat isn't what you want to do, then you, know, you could sell wine, which is going back to my cousin. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Like he had a great life and he made good money. And at that time I was just calling and emailing anybody who was in the wine business, to just find out what they did. And a writer I'd been working with, had a really good friend who had been repping wines for like seven or eight years. And he was starting to finally get his TV writing career going. He's like, I'm out. He's like, if you want to rep these distributors, let me take you out for like a month. See if you like it. Give it a few months. So I was just like, okay, fine. I will. It felt very like Willie Loman because you're like from death as a salesman. And, and, but I went with him and he was just like, tell me all the stuff. And it seemed kind of fun. I don't know. We were just like, spent the whole day going around to like restaurants and retail and pouring these wines and the people were always really cool. And, you know, everybody was like a different character that you, you moved along with. And that was kind of fun to me. Finally, he was like, just take it, just give it a couple months. And then if you don't like it, you can always back out. And then the first place I went to was like this wine shop down in Manhattan beach. And they bought like a shitload of wine. Like I'm like, <laughs> like a shitload of wine. <laughs> and I was hooked. I was like, this is fucking great. Like, and I probably didn't sell any wine for like several days after that, but it was like just enough of a drug. It was like somebody saying this first one's free. So yeah, I, sorry. I've gone on for so long. No, I've enjoyed listening to you like it, it, so sparking great. your eyes talking about your, your journey. I don't know if I've been that clear in explaining like what I do now. Like I work on behalf of a couple of wine distributors and I try to sell their wines to restaurants and retail shops. And to me, though, I'm working for some small boutique distributors. So I get this chance. The best way of explaining it is I kind of feel like a talent manager in Hollywood or in the music industry where I get the chance to represent all of this talent, all these talented winemakers, families, individuals. 
And there are some wineries where you just have to like email people in your underwear and at home. I realize that doesn't quite sound right. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> at home, I don't have to get out of bed. Right. I get on my laptop, I email people and I'm like, this wine's available. And they're like, yeah, send me a case or two or whatever. So that's like your A-list. Those are your people that you're always going to like, always going to sell no matter what. I don't have a lot of those people. But there's the B-list people who, you know, if you just get the wine in front of people, they're going to love it because you know their wines are fantastic and there's not a lot of them and the price is right and blah, blah. Then you kind of got your C and D where nobody knows who these people are, but you know they're talented. You know they deserve a future. So it's like that indie band where someone's giving you those like demos. You're like, I know this can be like the next Pearl Jam or the next whoever. And you're super driven and you're super passionate and you're just knocking on doors and moving around. You're saying, Hey, Catherine and Esther's, you're a big deal. Like you should, you know, <laughs> know about these wines yeah, exactly. and you don't care if like, I don't, you know, it's like, I don't care if you buy the wine or not. It's like, I'm just going to keep telling everybody because it's going to, it's going to stick. So I kind of think of it that way because with these small brands, I know all of the winemakers, most of the winemakers that I represent, I've either been to their house or I've gone over to France or Spain and I've walked the vines you know, on the property and I've had dinner with them and, and all of that. So I feel like there's also this vested interest in, oh yeah, I know about the Frisak brothers because I have walked the vines of the Frisak brothers and they're super cool. And let me tell you why they're cool and why they're, they're opposite. And I could go on about these guys, you know, and I think that's infectious, but it's also important. Like I, I love the idea that like I can, preach these stories about these winemakers and their stories and what they're doing. But like Catherine's got, like on the front lines with customers and consumers. Right. So I, I also have to find a way to translate this amazing story that I've learned about in a way that I can give to Catherine, that Catherine can then tell all of her customers, you know, about what's happening. And to me, that's exciting. I love the idea of being able to take this little family on this little farm that I've gone over to visit. And now I'm pouring the wines for Catherine and now she's Instagramming and she's pouring them for all of her customers and the customers are loving it. Like, I don't know. Anyway. It feels like a, continu well, yeah, it feels like still a continuation of um, what you got into when you got into the entertainment business, right? Yeah, like your you, storytelling. You love the storytelling aspect when you, as a writer, and that makes necessarily like the business component of being a writer, but you still love being a storyteller. And that's what Catherine kind of talks about on the podcast a lot is like, you know, maybe there's, there's some people who know more about the technicality of wine than Catherine. I think I'm not to speak for you. No, absolutely. But yeah, you know, we, we talk about the storytelling. Like that's what hooks people like it hooked you, you know, hooks to the, to the guests and the consumer. It's like. It, you know, and storytelling with, with people that you have a relationship with, you know, yeah. like you have a relationship and connection to the people, to the winemakers and the places that you visited. And you have a relationship to the people that you're selling to. You know, you like see them all the time. They trust you. And so you're only going to tell the stories and share the stories that you think are worthy of it. You know, yeah. and that's the same for me with the customers. Like, I only want to share those things that like, I'm like, this is real. You know, this is something special. I want you guys to participate in because for me, the wine that got me hooked on wine was the story of Domaine Tampier. And the story of Lulu and Lucien Peyrot and like how they came, like grew their family winery in Bendol. And then he yeah. like 
was the one who revived the Mavedra grape. And she had these epic dinners at her house with her seven kids and like entertain people from all over the world with these amazing recipes and like night long dinners. And like, you're like, wow, I'm participating in the story just by drinking this wine. I'm like, this is the best. Yeah. And like you, you could be talking about books or art or music or movies or anything. But the great thing with wine is like everybody who's involved in wine is so accessible. You know, you can, you can reach out to like pretty much any winemaker you want or you love, you know, and it's like, it's like your favorite band in a way, you know, and, and there's, there's everyone in the, going from like Hollywood to the wine world was such a mind fuck in that everyone is either super fake nice or they're assholes. And, but at the same time, like you're, you're taught to move mountains and, and then so many different things. And then you get in the wine world and everybody is so nice and you can't wrap your head around it because even though I'm from the Midwest and everyone's nice, it's like, you still can't wrap your head around it. Cause you're like, okay, what's your angle or why are you being so nice? And then you realize over time, like you're nice because you're doing what you're passionate and excited about, you know, whether you're in a tasting room at a winery or you're a sommelier or something like everyone who's in wine is there first and foremost, because they have this passion for wine. It's not a passion for drinking. I always tell people like, like, I don't want, I know everybody in my, all of my friends and family, like no one's in the wine business. Like they're all in, in multiple things, mostly like industry stuff. So no one knows anything about wine. And I was like, I always sound like that computer programmer. Like if I were a computer programmer showing up at a dinner party and just talking like generic code, everybody thinks you're like this super weird, but brilliant smart whatever you start talking about like just the tiniest little nuances and everybody's like i don't know what you're talking about but this is all super deep and it's complex and whatever but it to me wine is like this great epicenter of history and art and science and family and it's like there's so many things that can come together in this one bottle that to me is so special anyway <laughs> I, I like that and um one thing you talked about was the accessibility of people in wine i feel like that is maybe not known by people out in everyday everyday world i think a lot of people feel like as though wine is scary yeah. right yeah and so you know one thing i like to do on the podcast is sort of sort of speak for the everyday person and ask questions about that so one I kind of want to demystify a little bit more about what you do. And one of the questions I want to ask is like, how does your book take people on? What is that relationship like with the the winemakers and how do you decide who you're going to work with and who you don't, et cetera? How does that, how does that happen? Yeah. So the, the, the two main distributors that I, I help manage, at least in, in Southern California, one is called Mission Wine Merchants and it's predominantly wines from other countries, imports from, Spain, Portugal, um, a lot of a lot of French wines, um, a lot of South American wines. The other distributor I, I work with is uh, Burke Wine Brokerage, and they do um, a handful of people from the Central Coast of California. And now I'm already like, what was your question? My question is is basically, how how do, how do these books take people on? Like, how does oh, that? Take them on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. How do so, you- 
Yeah, you know, with, with Burke, it's the, the, the core group. This is unusual in that the, the, the Burke, the, Cal the Central Coast California people, it was started by a group of friends who all had separate wineries, and then it grew from there. Um, and they're all mostly in Paso. They make really good wines, and they all have their own voice, but they're also very, they put as much work into their branding and their packaging as they do in the quality of their winemaking. Meaning, so if you saw these, they're, they're a little hipster, kind of, I don't, rock and roll sounds kind of cheesy, but it's a little, it's not your just classic. That's like iconoclastic? Buttoned up, yeah, sure. uh, type of wines. And so when people, most the wineries that have come into the book are either assistant winemakers of those wineries who sort of get what, the book is is kind of putting out there basically accessible wines like there aren't any wines in that book that are like buttoned up fancy that feel like you got to spend a whole bunch of money on and so they don't they, they rarely take on new winemakers because it's just all about focus let's take focus on these people if somebody comes in and they feel right then we'll have a lengthy conversation and and see if they fit in the book sometimes there are wineries that come along in california because you know it just seems like every few months they're like more and more and more winemakers and you have wines that are like competing you know someone comes in like we've got two or three wineries already who have very rhone inspired wines so like wines that are grenache and syrah mavedra blends or they're really focused on grenache and you know some varietals like that which is very common in paso we might come across i mean this actually happens like fairly often as you taste somebody's wine you're like holy shit, this is unbelievable. This is amazing. However, you're competing against somebody in our book that's already really successful. And it's not because of me. It's that the people I'm selling the wines to already either know us as selling a particular brand and it's always being compared to that. Or I have somehow manage to whether through the quality of the wines or my relationship gotten that california roan slot on the shelf and you know you're gonna they're gonna, the buyer is going to say well i'm gonna stick with this brand a because i know they sell and they're gonna make me money and everyone likes them i've already built this following and therefore brand b has a lot more competition I don't, I don't know if that well it's a, I, you know what you, you said earlier you know you, you had a, you have a life in hollywood before this it sounds like you're actually an agent i mean it sounds like they're an agent because it's like i want to rep you but i already have two two tom cruises you know what i mean or i already have actor that kind of fills that slot yeah and you you want to sit there and you sit there and you think well that's not fair that's not necessarily right because people are smart enough to differentiate between the two and the quality and this and this and that but in reality, I'm sure like at, at Esther's, you're not going to have 20 different Loire Cab Francs because then your customer gets confused. Your customer doesn't know. And so you have a point of view and a purpose and a budget and so many factors that you're like, I need to have wines from this area. But there are a hundred other areas to like expose people to. And so if I've done my job with Brand A um, in trying to get them into restaurants and retail and build their brand. 
and then come around with and say, hey, I know I spent these last year or two, you know, speaking, <laughs> preaching from the mountain about this one brand. Hey, look at this other one. And so either I kick out brand A that I just spent a year or two trying to build. I, you know, you get it. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's tough. So, you know, when you're looking at bringing people on, you are considering that. However, the fun part is when you do find those people who, you know, offer something different or you're really passionate about and they hit a price point and they hit a point of view that either, really it's like when you know that the people that you are, as cheesy as it sounds, the salesman is sales many as it sounds <laughs> is people always say i don't work for my bosses or my company i work for my buyers like i think if you have that mentality that's a huge key to success because it's not about what i'm selling for my bosses it's it's like what how do i make the people that i work with successful because then like i'm not successful until Catherine's successful I'm not successful until the wine house is successful no. or Jolene is successful or whoever, you know what I mean? Like I could, I could come and try to get as much time as I can possibly get with various buyers and pour them the wines of the week of maybe 10% will actually be relevant or I can listen to what my buyers say and what they need, what they want, look at the wine list look at what they've turned down, look at what they've gone with and sort of do just like generic math and try to focus on what it is that's going to make your business success, successful. Um, and then I, I'm only successful when the businesses are yeah, with that, with that With that said, like, oh, how often are you able to sort of report back to these quote unquote bosses and say like, look, like, you know, I just want to be honest with you. The market that I'm working in isn't responding to this wine. All the time. Yeah. It, because it, it, I mean, that's, that's a tough part about wine is that you never know what people's tastes are. It's like you go into one place and they love the wine and they love it for every reason for why it's a good wine. And then you go 15 minutes later and the next person can't stand it. They hate it. And then you go to the third person and they're kind of mediocre on it. And then you go to the first person and they're like, I don't really like this wine, but I know I can sell a ton of it. And then they buy a bunch of it. And then the next person, they're like, oh, let me think about this. I don't know. Like, and it just, it's like mind boggling because it's like, again, it's like playing music. You're going to play, you know, a disc for one person. I say a disc, like it's 10 years ago. Hello. Um, you know what I mean? So it's like, it, that kind of screws in your head a little bit too. But I like to think that I, I try to be in tune with what everybody's, not just what everybody's tastes, personal tastes are, but what everybody's taste is on behalf of their customer. Hmm. Because yeah. there are a lot of people who will love, love, love certain wines, but know that their customer, quote, their audience doesn't jive with, if that makes sense. And okay. so I think it's, it's more important to understand what it is, like, what is it that Catherine needs? Or who is she? Sorry, I keep like pointing this to you. No, I'm like, that's what a good buyer does that you buy for your customers and you have your point of view within that. You can't just like, Oh, well everybody wants Sauvignon Blanc. So I'm going to have 20 Sauvignon Blancs. You don't do that. You have still your point of view 
but you have to buy things that your customer loves and you have to round it out. I couldn't have no Grenache because I don't like Grenache or, I mean, you could, but you just, it's so alienating to do yeah. that. It's not good. Absolutely. Buying. So I think, so yeah, you got, I, I think you got to be mindful of that kind of stuff, but in making wine for myself and having like a label also is a huge help for like both because I have like a better understanding and appreciate, I appreciate what all these other wineries and, and winemakers go through just from like a business standpoint and artist standpoint and, and all that, but also whether it be rejection or acceptance and, but I've, I'm now in like multiple States have out of state distribution. I've worked the market like in Colorado and I have a wine that's, that's a uh, Valdigi is the, is the grave, you know, which no one, I actually put the phonetic spelling on the back of the label to help <laughs> be like, this is how you say the grape and uh, which I hadn't seen before. And I mean, I'm out in the, like the, 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 the far West suburbs of Denver and you go into the first couple of shops and immediately like all the buyers are like 60 years old. They've had the shop for like 20, 30 years and they're selling like Santa Margarita and Kim Crawford. I mean, like just pallets of it. And they're like, I, I don't mean this to sound like, to like I love your Valdigui so much. This is the best one I've tasted all year, but I'm not going to buy it. And A, you're like, you're awesome for being honest with me. And B, like I sell wine all day long. I fucking get it. Like, get me out of here because yeah, this is like, you're speaking to your audience. Like you don't, it, it helps. Like it doesn't become personal. I have winemakers we do work with and their feelings get hurt for whatever different really, you know, reasons and stuff like that. But for me, it's kind of like, yeah, I get it. Like I, but you're, you're able to separate that because you're in the market all the time and you know, these people and you've seen the range. You just, you have more realistic understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, the best wines are, and at least to me, are the ones that have like the best personalities behind them. And I always find like the wines that represent the personality you've been drinking them or you get to know them and then you meet them. And it's like I have one wine that's the Herman story that is big and massive and high alcohol and Paso and it's like fucking monster trucks. And then you meet Russell who's behind it and he's like big and massive and bearded and like he is a party just in every movement of his life. And it's just like his wine is him, right? And then you, you know, you have other people who are like super OCD and very particular, and have a very point of view, and they just want to make Burgundy inspired wines and they've got to do it exactly like they took a trip to Burgundy and they, they met these producers and this is how they do it at Lafarge and this is how they blah, blah, blah. And like the wines are very fucking precise and like, like, angular and they're delicious and they're amazing and it's super precise and then you look over and you're like yeah that's that's you like yeah. you are that not to say it's a bad thing but no it's cool, like, cool way to think about and those wines are like always the most interesting or delicious because it it's somehow that person has translated themselves into that into that wine again that goes like i'm also fascinated by that like why do these wines why do wines reflect the person they're making because they're artists they're chefs it's like you could give 10 different winemakers access to the same row of vines and they pick them all and you're going to taste 10 different wines 
and even somebody who's listening to this who's like i don't i can't tell the difference but like you will know the difference like yeah. you don't have, to have experience like you'll know a difference give a chef 10 different chickens sorry <laughs> 10 different chickens and give them the same ingredients and they're all going to make a completely different dish it's true and, and and one thing that for me like i get so enthralled with a personality with a winemaker with their story with who they are I don't, I do not like to meet winemakers generally before I taste <laughs> the wine because I am swayed. I will be like, oh my gosh, this story and this person and their energy. And then, and then that colors the wine for me. Like Good I, enough. and it's funny because when we visited Burgundy, we were having dinner with um, Becky Wasserman and she was talking about the same thing that she doesn't like to meet the person because <laughs> otherwise she's so taken with them and, and she, they have to just send a bottle blind you know they just have to send it and and I feel the same you know when people want to come around and do winemaker visits I'm like send me the wine first please because otherwise I'm too swayed I can't I can't meet the people well you talk about the idea of wine representing the winemaker, wine person. Let's transition to your wines and what we're drinking tonight. And I will say this, two things. One, Catherine said, do we, should we drink the Valdegui? I said, I love that wine. Please no, it's too hot. Yeah, it's too Let's hot. drink the Albarino, which by the way, um, we had for, uh, I think Esther's had in the wine club. And, I, and one of my friends texted me, who's in the wine club and said, this wine's ridiculous. My Multiple compliments on this wine. My so brother texts me. My brother's in the wine club. He rare. He doesn't really drink wine. He's in the wine club to support Esters, and he texts me a picture of it. Like this is so good. Like that was pretty. Oh, that was high compliments, Andrew. Ah, uh, come on. Like, seriously, he does not do that. No, it's great. A lot of high praise. We're excited to be drinking tonight. So, can you go ahead and um, introduce the wine that we're drinking tonight? And yeah. So this is um, an Albarino which is uh, most commonly found in Spain, all over. What's your, I, what's your wine company name? So it's called Major Wines. My last name is Major, so super original in the, in the naming of it. But I just felt like, own it. Uh, I, like, I like my last name. And, uh, <laughs> it's a great last name. It is. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, so I decided to launch a wine brand because I also liked, I, I think I'm a creative person. I sell all these wine brands and I've always had these opinions and whatnot. And so I was making wine in my garage. And then when I made wine at Tyler in 2012, I've saved back a bunch of bottles. And then one of the, the wineries that I wrapped called Field Recordings, um, I'd given him a bottle of the, the wine that I made and he liked a lot and was like, we don't have a sort of higher end Pinot in the book. Like if you want to come make wine at my winery, I'll help you out and you can use equipment. So blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, of course. So I, I made four barrels of Pinot in 2014. And now in 2020, I'm at like a thousand cases just across of like Pinot, Rosé, Duval de Guy, and Albarino. I did a little gamay a couple of years ago. And, but Albarino is a white that I've always loved. And I've especially loved it when it's in the Central Coast. Uh, grown on the Central Coast. I think there's some little climates and weather as in Spain. Uh, so we're drinking this um, Albarino. It's from a vineyard in Edna Valley, which is about 30 minutes south of Paso Robles. It's really, really close to the ocean. It's one of the closest vineyards to the Pacific Ocean in all of California. It's called Moro View, if you prefer Moro Bay. Um, because it's close to the ocean and has, it's very cool climate, but it, it can handle, like Albarino can handle tons of sun and tons of heat when that 
morning fog and coolness sort of blows off. And this particular vineyard, it's a very like new young vineyard that was planted maybe like eight or nine years ago. But the Alvarino, this is like the second or third set of fruit that's come off of those vines. And, and they're finding that these wines at this vineyard are much higher in acid than most around the whole area. And so you have to pick off of pH or acid more than actual like ripeness, which for somebody who likes more acid, maybe more than fruit, it's like the perfect, perfect spot for that. That'd be us as well. Yep. And so, so the other element of this is I spritzed in some carbonation, a little bit of bubbles in it. And I did that because prior to making my last vintage in 2018, I'd gone on this trip to Portugal and visited all these wineries that I represent and sell in my day job. And, you know, you're drinking Vino Verde all day long, which is like a very low alcohol, very light white wine that you can essentially drink all day long. They drink it like water, more than water. And I'd already been thinking about making Alvarino. And then when I came back and then I thought, oh, well, no, I don't, I can't think of anybody who's kind of spritzed the, the Alvarino like they do with Vino Verde. And so I just decided at the last minute to spritz it. And uh, yeah. People, How does one do that? You put in a, a specific pressurized tank and you can determine the level of pressure in it. And so I basically picked a like pounds per, pounds per pressure level that was equivalent to like soda. You kind of try to figure out like what are the light bubbles. There's, there's obviously like pet nat and other things, which I'm not as interested in making. And this, I just decided I'll just own it. I'll just put a little spritz in it and that felt like that that kind of changed the wine well what i like about it is that some california albarinos taste like a whole lot of other things but not albarino but this actually does taste like albarino it has that like great tangerine and lime it has that like saltiness to it and it that spritz just makes it extra refreshing it just like there, there's acidity, but it's really soft at the finish. So you, we're having it without food right now, and it's so no problem. But you could, yeah. but it's you could have it with a lot of different foods. I just like that it tastes like Albarino, the grape. Yeah, and that's I I didn't do anything to to do that. <laughs> it's a great sentence. Like I didn't do anything to do that. Well, you uh, didn't take away from it. Is the main yeah. Thing. And, and I think like just the spritz is, you know, just elevates it a little bit and gives it that fun kind of refreshing summary. Like, I don't know. I just felt inspired at the time and people seemed to dig it. It was just that little extra twist of, of different on it. Yeah. That, people are loving it. I mean, I have three questions uh, for both of you, actually. Catherine, I'll ask you first, like when people are thinking of Albarino, what are some of the broad, and, and we'll toss it to Andrew as well. What are some of the broad terms? You mentioned earlier tangerine and things like that, but when people talk about Albarino, what are they thinking about? Well, usually for me, obviously if we're thinking about a white wine, we're thinking about something with like medium body. And I think about it in sort of in the Sauvignon Blanc, Gruner, Veltliner world, but it's, and it's because it's not as aromatic as Riesling. But to me, it always has a tangerine and white flowers, which is different from Sauvignon Blanc, which is more grapefruit, citrus, and grassy. And Gruner, Veltliner, which has more of that, um, those crunchy green vegetables and that herbaceous note. And Albarino is from Rias Bacias, and so I just always think of it being like having like some 
sea salt water element to it, you know, which this definitely does have that like sea breeze character to it. And it has a little bit of texture, you know, more so than like uh, Muscadet, which is another great seafood, sea breezy wine. Albarino has some texture and, and it can have a little alcohol to it. Um, but I think that's what it is. It's, 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 it's a great version of domestic Albarino. I mean, the alcohol here is 11.2%, which is good news Ooh, for us. We, we, like the, we like the sound of that. Yeah. You know. Spot on. It's exactly that. 11.2. <laughs> Most um, people, like, print the label ahead of time before there's, like, a final test and they try to get within that window. It's like I do mine at, at the absolute last minute as possible, so the alcohol is usually pretty precise <laughs> well I'm, i want i'm glad you brought up the label because i like to ask people you know since we are a retail store as well as a wine bar we pay a lot of attention to the packaging this is a screw top which which i think is great and but how much time did you spend in the packaging for your wine so <laughs> i i only feel like giving a tiny bit of backstory because this one i gave it like 24 hours um which sounds like it's so like sloppy thrown together but my first one that I, that I did is Pinot Noir because for me, I, I know there's like more, the world has more than enough Pinot Noir um, and I'm just adding to that. However, for me, wine started the, the, the lightning, the coup de food, like started with Pinot. So I always, my, my philosophy at least now is I either want to like make something I'm super passionate about, which is Pinot, because it's always interesting, always interesting to me. It never falls away. Wherever you drink it, it's always it always tastes like Pinot. However, there's a different story. There's a different profile to it. it it's always evolving in my mind. And, or I want to do something different, something that not many other people are doing. Like a Cal, my, like this is my California version of Vino Verde. But the branding. So I I did an internship with uh, late uh, the Late Show with David Letterman when I was in college in New York, and they used to wow. do these like um, commercial bumpers where when they would go in and out of the show, they would always have some funny use of like late night or late show with David Letterman. And there was one where a guy's like spray painting uh, in a seedy motel room, late night with David Letterman, or it'd be like late night car wash, or there's some mechanic like coming out under the car. It's like late night mechanics or casino or whatever. Or somebody's like etched late night in some like hotel lobby and a guy's trying to buffer it out. I always thought that was like really, really funny. And so with my Pinot, I decided to like on the label is my, at the time, two-year-old in her diaper, like spray painting Mater wines on her wall. And I just thought it was like super funny, the idea of like, here's like a two-year-old, like this fake fandom, like this whole idea that here's this brand that doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. Yet this, these labels are acting as though there's like this movement or some stupid thing happening. And so with Alvarino, the long way to get over to this story is I thought it was really funny at the time where I was getting all this mail, um, all these California propositions where it was like legalize this, you know, pull back on this, legalize this, legalize, legalize pot, everything. And I just thought it'd be funny for some reason if in the mix of that, it was like legalized major wines, like we're legalizing everything. Like let's legalize my fucking wine brand. And I had these like stickers printed up and I went around like Silver Lake and downtown and everywhere and just put stickers on everything, legalized major wines and like print up shirts and stuff. And 
you know, it got, it got so funny. I like, I'll walk around the mall and people will be like, what's legalized major wines. And I tell them the story or so coming back to the Albarino <laughs> is it's got a, a fake California ballot. And someone is, and on that ballot are these propositions in the middle. It says legalized major wines and has a whole like thing. And like the woman's checking. Yes. And at the time it was like, Oh, we got a bottle at the winery. We have to bottle at a certain time. Like, just in a few days, we needed a label like immediately. And so my wife was like, you've never done anything with the legalized major wines that you've sort of hashtagged and done stuff with. I was like, oh yeah. And so she like quickly created a fake California ballot and put legalized major wines. But your wine is delicious, as we said earlier. So a lot of people good. are, all of our friends are talking about it. And we, went, we asked two questions every episode about the wine we're drinking. So the first one we alluded to it earlier, but what would you use for food pairings with this wine? I would do any kind of like white fish, seafood, light salads, like with like just arugula, tomato, like how you think of this wine, light and delicate, light and delicate foods. It goes, it goes great with that. A hundred percent. Sounds delicious. But honestly, like my, my take with the wines that I make too is where everybody's all about the food pairings. I actually just want my wines to drink on their own. I don't actually care about. You hate that question is what you're saying. No, no, I don't. I don't hate the question. <laughs> but I also am like, I like telling people like just drink, like I want to make wines that, that just drink on the stand on their own. If someone comes to me and, and they say, hey, you're like, your wine, but man, when you pair it with like bouillabaisse or something, holy shit, it's amazing. It's like, great. But I'm like, I always start with wines first and then I move to food. And so often I'm like, I know this food isn't going to go with the wine, but maybe it'll, it's always, for me, it's always the wine first. And so. Well, it's, it's great without, without food. Um, the Valdegues too, but I was just sitting here thinking like, this would also just be so good with like, you know, salty potato chips. Like that would just be oh, perfect. <laughs> See, now I'm rethinking my... Yeah, you, you stepped too soon. You stepped too soon, my man. Potato chips? Yes. Um, the second question we ask every episode is, how can we tell people where to find this wine, whether it be in Southern California or other uh, regions? Colorado, you mentioned. Colorado, you mentioned. Like, how can people find the wine? Well, they can find it at Asterius, because you guys have Valdegui and the, and the Albarino, which is super awesome. I have a website, majorwines.com. I'm in Toronto, a lot around Southern California, around San Francisco, and now I'm in I'm in Missouri, Illinois. I just sent my wines up to Washington State. They're about to be in Arkansas. Super random, but I'm actually kind of excited about that because there's like just this like little light beginning wine scene happening there, so it's kind of exciting. In Colorado, I mentioned, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day. Uh, you can, you can, I have a website. Yeah. Say the website one more time. Majorwines.com. So now we transition to the last portion of the show, which is what has been inspiring us this week. Catherine, do you have anything on the noggin that you want to go first? Um, I do. I'm going to tell you in one second. Yeah. Person sure. I'll go. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and go first. So I've been looking for ways to support small businesses of indigenous culture. So I bought some clothes from thenatives.com. The company is called T-H-E-N-T-V-S.com. Really love the materials I bought. Like I bought like four or five shirts, a couple hats. I think the clothing is ridiculously cool. 
So if you're just a little description on the natives, which is how it's pronounced. It's a native owned clothing company established in 2014. It's a brand for everyone who supports indigenous culture. They encourage you to buy authentic and not cheap knockoff designs that appropriate the culture. So if you're looking for something into that, cool t-shirts, hats, and if you support that you know, culture, go to thentvs.com, the natives.com. Got my box, it finally arrived. Loving the gear. I can't wait to rock the hats. I think the hats are super cool. So that's my uh, that's my that's my thing I'm inspired by this week. Oh yeah. The shirts are really cool. I'm on it right now. They're cool. Stephen Paul Judd, I think, is one of the creators. Um, and he's a great uh, very creative artist, makes a lot of great stuff. Well, I am inspired this week by a new podcast, second week in a row on a podcast, um, that I found, which has been around for a while, but it's new to me, which is called The Color of Wine, and it's with Sakari Bowman. Um, it puts spotlight on people of color in the wine industry, and I, it's been on for several seasons, and I found it because I was looking into... Um, you know, I don't know, more wine podcasts. And it's awesome. I've learned some histories of other people in the wine industry I might not normally have known about. And then also people I do know about like Raj Parr, but it's a very cool podcast to get into, to be introduced to people of color in the industry. So check it out. I will. Can I say what I've been inspired? Yeah, do yours. Please, please do. Go ahead. So I was... I've spent all week because I'm. I like to be politically active and politically engaged. And I was watching the the last night of the Democratic National Convention tonight. And I this is not going to be a political thing at all. But they had a kid on there named Braden, who Joe Biden's talked a lot about how he's had a stutter his whole life, and they had a kid on there named Braden who stutters. And he gave this whole talk where he'd like written it out. He'd met Joe Biden at a political event. And afterwards, Biden was talking, he's like, hey, you and I have something in common. We both suffer from stuttering. And so this kid on national television has this 10 minute discussion and he's stuttering through the whole thing, but he's explaining how like, he has helped me and, and these are the tactics, tactics that he's used in his speech giving and like blah, blah, blah. But like point is, is like, here's this young kid who early teens, late childhood, who's on national television, like getting, like getting stuck in the stuttering and just owning it and moving forward. And I was like blown away thinking if this kid, this kid in a normal classroom and everyone making fun of him and he's scolding him or whatever. And all of a sudden he's like on national television with his stutter and he's owning it. Like it just, it, it hit me in such a, again, I'm not relating this to Biden or politics or anything. It was the fact that I watched a, a young kid stutter and own it on, on national television and move past it was just like, it blew me away. I was so proud of this kid. I was a stutterer when I was growing up, so I totally relate to that and empathize with people that, that go through that. So Yeah, it was, it was um, amazing, this kid. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> all right, well, thanks a lot for jumping on. I'll, I'll see you around Esther's. I'm sure Catherine will see you more, but um, let's, let's yeah. link up and, and have a glass of wine somewhere in the fall. 
for sure. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. This is incredible. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. We'll talk soon. Yeah. All right, that's it. That's a fantastic interview that we had with Andrew Major. Really had a lot of fun. Sorry it took so long for us to get this out, but that was from August. I think so much of it's relevant. We talked about the heat. We're actually going through some heat now in Southern California again. It's hot again. heat wave today. But I think that wine would be delicious as the early part of Thanksgiving. Definitely a good Thanksgiving wine. A thousand percent. Because it's so light. Good thing to sort of start your afternoon off with. Or even just with the meal because you want something refreshing when everything else is so heavy. Yeah. And it's super refreshing. So think about that when you're thinking about wines for Thanksgiving or the holiday season or New Year's or really anytime. That wine is really crazy delicious. Hope you had a good time with that. So be sure to follow Andrew Major on Instagram at Andrew underscore Major or go to MajorWines.com to pick up some wines today from him. We'll put those in the liner notes of the podcast. And that's it. That's episode 46 of the long finish. Episode 46 is in the books. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you have an opportunity to rate, review, and subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, it means a lot to us. It means a lot to the show. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Catherine, where can they find you in the long finish on social media? You can find me at Catherine Weil Coker on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find the long finish at the long finish on Instagram and Facebook. You can find the long finish on Twitter at TLF pod. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Tug Coker. Thanks again to everyone for listening to the show. We should be back next week with a Thanksgiving episode, some wines for the start of the holiday season. Just a reminder, everyone be safe out there. Be smart. Wear masks. Practice safe social distancing. Be healthy. Treat everyone with kindness. We'll be back next week. Right? Yes. With an all new episode of the show. Until then, have a great week and happy drinking. Ciao.